This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It is great to be here together and uh, to survive, I think, our third installment of winter. Crazy, the snow this morning. But I'm glad that you're here, excited to be together. If you're new or visiting with us, last week we kicked off a brand new series looking at these rhythms. We believe that there are these rhythms, these habits that you can engage in, and as you do, they will lead you towards a deeper and richer spiritual life. We really believe that these are life-changing discipleship experiences. And if you are here last week, we kicked off the first rhythm, and it all had to do with just having a daily devotional, spending time with God every day. And I've just been praying for our church. I know our rooted small groups kind of engaged this uh, together starting this week. And I've just been praying. I, I hope for many of you, if maybe that was a new experience uh, that just gave you this appetite and this hunger to know God. Today, the rhythm I want to talk about is all about prayer. In fact, um, it's kind of interesting. This fall, I preached uh, a really long series called I'll Pray For You. And I felt like I kind of went deep into the well of, of what I know and my experiences with prayer. And now, just seems like a couple months later, I'm already back on the subject. And I'll be honest with you, I feel like this is one of those subjects that, I'll just be real honest, this is an area I've, I've struggled with in my own spiritual life. Uh, not that I don't love praying. I, I love praying when I'm alone. I love praying with people that are going through things in their lives. I love praying for you as a church. In fact, I'm going to close this message in a word of prayer. But there's still something about prayer that makes it, I don't know, challenging for me. And, and maybe you feel similar. I, I think prayer has this, this strange rhythm to it that you don't always see the results right away. And I don't know, maybe prayer kind of falls more in this category of it's it's mystical and it's mysterious. And, and yet, I think for some, that can be a reason to sort of push it away. And this morning, I, I want to draw your attention to prayer. In fact, um, one of the things I often do is I try to remember what it was like. Because if you struggle with prayer, you're not the first. In fact, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the church. And so sometimes in my, in my time of reading through God's Word, I'll go back to that very first church. And it's the first church that's found in the book of Acts. And it's just... Beautiful. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's beautiful in how they too had to learn these rhythms together corporately. In fact, I want to take you just for a moment into uh, kind of my week, and I want to read for you just this, this picture. And I want you to kind of imagine a group of people learning these rhythms for the very first time. It's found in Acts chapter 2, and it starts in verse 42. Speaking of the first followers, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This image, this first community, is noted by that little word that I underlined, devoted. And that word devoted actually means um, to persevere. In fact, it's kind of an interesting word. The word devoted is most often used in that time uh, to kind of denote like a warrior mindset. To be real focused in your attention. In fact, uh, they love to use this word to describe like gladiators going into battle. And, and so we think sometimes that this Christian faith that we share is like, oh, it's just quiet and peaceful. When in fact, it's meant to be intently focused and persevering. I love how this early church had this way about them, right? I mean, they, they got together and they did all the sorts of things that maybe in your life you're trying to figure out as well. 
Uh, one theologian described the early church as being the masters at gathering and then scattering. The first church would gather together and they would do what you're doing. They would listen to some teaching by the apostles. They would break bread. They would have a chili cook-off. They would, you know, spend this time in fellowship and in prayer together. And then they would, they would scatter. They would go back to their homes and their businesses and they had kids and families and all the same sorts of things that you did. If you find any of these rhythms in this series challenging, I just want you to know you're in good company. You're in a good company of people who've learned these rhythms over time. So today, the way I want to approach prayer is I've been thinking about, well, the hardest and the easiest thing about prayer. I want to kind of share with you this morning what I believe is the hardest thing about prayer and the easiest thing about prayer. Now, we'll do all the hard work at the beginning, and we'll save the easiest thing about prayer for the very end. But the hardest thing about prayer actually has to do uh, with this little box here. And to understand what I mean by that, I want to invite you to open up God's Word and to read First, First Chronicles chapter 13. Actually, I should say, maybe the hardest thing this morning will be for some of you to find First Chronicles. Uh, it's a little book in the Old Testament. You'll come to a series of first and seconds. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings. First, if you hit second Chronicles, you've gone too far. When you hit Chronicles, what you're really reading is you're reading the Chronicles of the life of David. Now, you probably know a little bit about David. If I just kind of remind you, David is this man who starts off as a young shepherd boy, but he has, he has a heart for war. In fact, he wants to be at the very front of the enemy lines doing battle like his brothers. Instead, he's tending the sheep of his father. And his dad sends him on this errand to go visit his brothers, and he can't wait. In fact, he gets right to the front of the enemy lines, and he realizes his brothers are cowards. Uh, they all are kind of cowering and holding back because there is one man on the other side that no one wants to face, and that is the giant Goliath. And David is like, well, game on. I've killed bear. I've killed wild animals. I can certainly take out Goliath. And while they try to dissuade him from this, he just simply picks up five smooth stones, and he goes to battle, and with one shot, David takes down Goliath. And if that weren't enough to kill Goliath, he then pulls out his sword and he cuts off Goliath's head. I mean, the total savage moment, right? I mean, he's not missing this opportunity. And there's something about this that endears David to the crowds. They all want to follow him. He becomes a leader worth following. And he leads God's people on all these um, conquests and all these battles. But God has also given them something, this reminder that greater than David, greater than any earthly king is, is the God in heaven. And God has given him this reminder. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark wasn't God, but it represented kind of a symbol that God would never leave them, that God was always with them. Uh, it was also kind of like a, a reminder of all the things that God had done for them. So inside of the Ark of the Covenant, they would have kept uh, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. They would have kept a, a jar from when they wandered in the desert. They would have kept a jar of the manna. Kind of can think of the Ark of the Covenant in a way as sort of like a time capsule of all the things that God had done for them. But God was really clear about the details of how the Ark of the Covenant was to be made. You can see it's inlaid with gold. 
uh, on the cover, there are two angels, two seraphim, and, and God would come down and he would speak to them between the cherubim. Uh, there were two poles, and God, again, was extremely clear that the only way to move this was to carefully lift it by these two poles, and it was only to be carried uh, by a priest. So again, really, really clear instructions. Well, the Israelites don't off, didn't always treat this with the respect that was required. They just kind of thought it was a box. And they kind of thought it was like the God box. And wherever the bo box went, well, then God would go too. And they would do things like they would take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. In fact, one time they didn't even pray about it. They just thought, well, we have the box. We can go to battle. We will win. We've got God on our side. And guess what? They lose. And not only do they lose many men in that battle, but they also lose the Ark of God. And it's taken uh, captive by their enemies, the Philistines, and they have to retreat, rebuild their ranks, and then they go and they finally take it back from the Philistines. And what you're about to read is them taking this Ark of God back into the city. And it would have been a huge celebration. Think like ticker tape parade, think Super Bowl celebration. Uh, one scholar estimated that in this scene, about 30,000 people would have witnessed <clears throat> what you're about to read. Um, again, the ark is not God. It's just a picture of who God is being there with them. So let's read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, starting in verse 7. It says, They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and with harps, lyres, timbrels, cymbals, and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kaidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, the place is called Perez-Uzzah. Okay, it's kind of a strange story, is it not? I mean, this is one of those stories that you kind of read it and you're like, oh, that's a strange way in which God acted. In fact, there's this weird emotion of anger and it seems like, well, God is angry and Uzzah, this guy, pays the price. And then it seems like because God is angry, David gets angry. We got to come back. We'll deal with that in just a moment. But you read this story, and it begins to shape your mind. You begin to think, well, is this how God really acts? I mean, is God kind of this vengeful, petty person? I mean, it seems like Uzzah, you know, they just took this box. They put it in a cart. It's being hauled by some cow. The oxen stumble, and Uzzah just seems to do kind of the right thing, right? I mean, the box is going to fall, and so Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it, and he gets smoked for this, right? I mean, he's like toasted for this. I mean, if what Uzzah did was wrong, it would seem like, well, is this like a minor offense? Could they maybe, you know, just a slap on the wrist or maybe Uzzah has to sit in the corner and take a time out for a little while? But, but to completely oust him seems so weird. But I told you that God gave really clear instructions about this Ark of the Covenant, this Ark of God. God was really, really clear. And the way in which they acted, they were acting sort of haphazard with it. In fact, the ark was always supposed to be, as I said, picked up by the poles. 
and they kind of just took it like a box and tossed it in a cart and had some cows drag it around. In fact, it was this sort of like irreverence for God that led to this moment. And you might think that this is petty, but God needs to teach them a lesson that if they aren't willing to obey God fully, are they really willing to obey God at all? And we're talking about prayer this morning. And the reason I wanted to study this story is because the story shows that what you think about God will entirely shape what you think about when you pray to God. And if you think that God is just some sort of box, I mean, how many Amazon boxes do you get at your house a week, right? Like, I feel like every day that truck is pulling in, and you can start to just think, well, there's another box, and, you know, toss it over here, put it in the corner. And you can begin to kind of allow that to impact your prayers. Well, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I've got issues. You know, they're serious. Or maybe a diagnosis comes back. Well, it's bad news. I should probably pray now. Well, you know, I find out that my my job is disappearing. Ah, It's probably time to pray. We begin to treat God like he's just another box. And so I wanted to start with this hard part about prayer because I think the hardest part about prayer is remembering this. And in remembering this, the hardest part is really, really trying hard to not put God in a box. To not try to manipulate or control or orchestrate God as, as if you could just get him to do whatever you want. Prayer kind of becomes cheapened like an Amazon delivery to just something that's, you know, commoditized. And if I do the right things and say the right words, then, you know, I'll have God on my side. And we should never try to put God in a box. That's the hardest thing about prayer. But I think there's something kind of behind this going on. In fact, all this week I was reading this, and this point came really clear from God, and I had no problem understanding, okay, God, don't, let's be a church that doesn't put you in a box. But, but all week long I was kind of wrestling with this story because there's kind of a thing behind the thing, right? I mean, we're talking about what shapes our, our prayer life, but there's still this moment, right? I mean, I read this story, I made my point, but, but I'm a bit unsatisfied. I read through this, and, and I don't know if you feel like me, but it's still a tragic scene. I mean, this guy Uzzah is gone, right? I mean, he's completely wiped off the face of the earth. And you start thinking, like, well, is this how God works? I mean, makes an example out of the one guy on three men in a truck, right? Like, he just kind of uses this moment to make this really weird example out of him. And you can start to think, well, this is going to shape what I think about God then. And, and you can begin to miss kind of the, the bigger picture here in this moment. I think a lot of times people, when they think about God, they think, well, God is just, he's just pulling these strings. He's like a great puppeteer. And if he's angry, well, then I'm going to pay for it. And if he's not in the mood to hear my prayers, then, well, I'm probably not going to get the answer that I want. We can kind of make God out to be this way, this evil or vengeful kind of person. In fact, it doesn't take much to actually see this played out so many ways Um, in our culture. In fact, I think there's oftentimes this misunderstanding and this misportrayal of God where God is just evil. And it comes about in a variety of different ways. In fact, um, I found just a few of them I thought I'd share with you this morning. Uh, There's a really old cartoon called The Far Side, and we don't even get a newspaper anymore, but I used to read this, and this is 
uh, kind of a humorous depiction of God if God were sitting at his computer. And God's kind of got like his finger over the button and you're kind of watching like as if God is watching the scene. Oh, there's a guy walking down the street and should I let the piano fall on his head or not? And in fact, if you can't see the, the little button that God's about to push or has the option to push is the smite button. You know, some people think, well, is God just out there to smite me and ruin my day? Kind of funny, this idea of God smiting us gets played out in a really popular movie called Bruce Almighty, starring, of course, none other than Morgan Freeman as God, and Jim Carrey. And it's an older movie, but the depiction of Jim Carrey's uh, person is so, is so like today. He's mad, he's upset, he's frustrated that God is not doing his job, he doesn't get the promotion at work, and he just goes on this rant. He's so angry at God. In fact, in the scene, he's driving his car full of road rage, and he crashes his car, and Jim Carrey's character gets out of his car, and he's all animated, and, and he says this line. He says, smite me, almighty smiter. And it's just meant to be this, this realization that people are angry with God. Is God out to just smite me and harm me? In fact, um, another case, I used to work in the insurance industry for a while, and in the insurance industry, I don't know if you realize it, but there's certain claims that your insurance has a clause against, right? Certain things that it won't pay for. You ever notice that? There's certain claims that are kind of hidden in the lines, like it won't pay out if there's a hurricane or a tornado. Why? What do we call those? They call those acts of God. Kind of ironic. We don't ever attribute, you know, beautiful sunsets as an act of God or a warm tropical breeze. It seems as though our, our, our world just wants to portray this God that is so evil, that is so angry, that is such a villain. In fact, I've, uh, over the years, I've loved talking to people who don't believe in God the way I do. In fact, um, I've had so many conversations with people who claim to be atheists. And I love talking to atheists because I've never found a group of people that say that they don't believe in God, but actually know an awful lot and think they know an awful lot about God. And this happens at all levels. I'll use an extreme case. Probably the most well-known atheist of our day is a guy by the name of Richard Dawkins. He's getting up there in age. He's like in his late 80s, and he has not changed his view on God. He is still very opposed to there being a real God. He's written a whole book called The God Delusion, and I just wanted to read just a snippet of it for you. This is what he thinks about when he thinks about God. He says, the God of the Old Testament, which is what we're reading today, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomanical, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. He kind of gets nasty after that, so I'll cut the quote off there. But this is what some people think about God. And while this is an extreme case, I will tell you that if even one of those ideas begins to become your image of God, it will absolutely impact and spoil your prayer life. And I've met many people over the years where something hasn't gone right or they've been, they've felt like they've been wrong, that God has been unjust and they're hurt and they're angry and they struggle to even pray to God. And that might be you this morning. 
And so I think the thing behind the thing is actually trying to understand this whole emotion of anger, right? I mean, if we're trying to figure out how to pray and we have any emotion that draws us away from God, then we have to deal with that. And the emotion that we see in this story is anger. We see God's anger, and then we see David's anger. And and yet what I need you to see this morning is that there is a monumental difference between human anger and holy anger. Huge difference. In fact, when it comes to our anger, human anger, uh, we all know it. I don't have to ask for a show of hands. You've all experienced anger and and you know that anger is, is oftentimes, it's, it's seen before it's felt, right? I mean, you just know when somebody's angry. You can just kind of see it, and that's because anger takes these physical forms. In fact, when you become angry, it's just physiological. Your, your muscles begin to clench. Your nostrils do this little thing where they flare. Your skin gets red. You begin to pour with sweat. Deeper inside of you, you're heart rate is accelerating, your blood pressure is beginning to rise. I was actually reading an article separate from this all on marriage counseling. They've actually done marriage counseling with couples and they've hooked them both up to heart rate monitors and then kind of see when the conversation gets off and gets elevated, heart rates rise. And just before they get to kind of a point of resolution, the heart rates come back down. It's true. And as anger accelerates, you have all these emotions. In fact, uh, the part of your brain that's responsible for for kind of keeping your emotional balance and your reasoning is your amygdala. And it can become so flooded with dopamine, they have what's called, you'll have what's called an amygdala hijacking. You know anyone who's ever gotten so angry, they've just like lost their mind, they've just come unhinged? It's this moment, this feeling. And your entire central nervous system just becomes incapable of a rational thought. See, a lot of times we think of anger and it's sort of like, it's kind of like a superhero, it's, it's in one moment, it's Dr. Bruce Banner, and then in the next moment, you're this incredible raging Hulk. And human anger, the Bible is really clear that, that in your anger, the Bible says, do not sin. And that's usually the point in which we make the mistake. And if you've sinned in your anger, then you need to repent from that, and you need to repair. If you've hurt someone with your words or your actions, you need to go and repair that relationship, starting with repenting. But God's anger is different from human anger. In fact, God's anger is entirely different because God is not like us. He has an anger that is holy and righteous. If you think about it, God can't sin, so he doesn't have the same sort of feelings. He's not a superhero because God never changes. God doesn't have a meltdown because he doesn't have an amygdala. He doesn't have a brain like we do in the sense that we do. In fact, God's anger works in a very different way, and it's always directed against the sin of the world. In fact, I love this. I could have turned to a number of places. There's about seven places in Scripture that describe this anger, and it always describes God's holy anger the same way. One example would be Psalm 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in love. Do you see the difference? God's anger has this very different way about it, that in his anger, he's angry at sin, but he has great love for his sinners. He's compassionate and gracious. He's abounding in love, and his anger is slow to develop. This entire story, as painful as it is to read, and as it gets played out in front of 30,000 people, this entire moment is to teach them that God is not under his, their control. 
He, he's not an idol. He's not a superstition. God is not a force that they can use for their own selfish human needs. God is not a commodity that you shove in a box and use in the ways in which you need to. We may not like this story. We don't like hearing about Uzzah, this innocent guy, or this person just kind of being roasted in the moment, but it should bother us far more if we had a God that tolerated sin and didn't strive for the honor that he's due. And this brings us all back to the idea of prayer, because what you think about God will be entirely what you think about when you pray to God. If we think that God is just a tool that we can just use God in the ways in which we need to, then we'll always just try to treat him as if he's a box. And yet if we treat God as someone who's, that we're in awe of, that has this abounding love, then our prayers will shape that way as well. And the hardest thing about prayer is not putting God in the box. And I promised you we'd close with the easiest thing about prayer. And this is the part of prayer that everyone can do. Every single person can do this easiest part about prayer, and that's very simply, to just treat your prayer life as a conversation with God. To just talk to God throughout your day about whatever is going on in your day. I, I mean, I was thinking about this story, and I don't know, for some reason I, I thought about how so many people I know have a morning routine. If you follow a, a celebrity or an athlete, you know, they'll, they'll often go on YouTube and they'll, they'll record for you what their morning routine is. And it's so interesting to me. I have a morning routine as well. It usually involves large quantities of coffee as well as reading my Bible and praying. And, and yet the thing I've learned about a good morning routine is it's, well, it's only a morning routine. And so often these great practices that we have first thing in the morning, they get left in the morning. And how different it would be if your morning routine and parts of it actually became every part of your day. That you carried the morning into, say, the mid-morning and the lunch, and the afternoon, and these great practices of, of turning to God, these rhythms of praying to him, weren't something that just happened at one point of the day and then were ignored. I was thinking about these people, and, and here they've messed up so many times with how they've mistreated the ark of God. And in this moment, how bizarre. I wonder if one of them, if, if they would have just thought, how different it would have been if someone would have just thought, hey, we've kind of gotten this wrong before. Wait a minute, before we move the ark of God again, could somebody pray? Could somebody maybe like seek God in his wisdom and what would it do? I wonder if something maybe would have turned out a little differently for Uzzah. They would have just had a conversation and just talked to God. And we can do that. We can just simply use our day to talk to God about whatever's going on in our day, throughout our day, every single day. And I'm telling you this morning, just make it simple. Just have it be a conversation. Uh, I told you I was doing some reading on, on counseling and just kind of always trying to kind of better myself and, and what I'm called to do as a pastor. And, and there was this great analogy about how uh, in a marriage, it's a conversation and how that conversation can always go one of three ways. I've never thought of it this way, but if you have a conversation with your spouse and your spouse says something to you, you've got three choices. Your spouse says something to you. The first thing you can do is you can turn away from your spouse. It's not that hard to do. It's really quite easy to be cold and distant and unresponsive. Most of us don't even have to try. It's really easy. But it probably won't allow the conversation to go much further. The second thing you can do when your spouse says something to you is, instead of turning away, you can turn against your spouse. You can become hypercritical, demeaning. You can get angry. And that likely, too, will shut down the conversation. 
And so the only way to really keep the conversation going is the third option, to not turn away or turn against, but to turn towards your spouse and to become very interested in what they're sharing, to encourage them and, and to ask questions and to allow the conversation to be mutually edifying for both people. And I think the same thing is true in prayer. When it comes to this conversation with God, you can, you can turn away from God. You can certainly turn against God. Many people do. Or you can turn towards God. And you can begin to have this conversation in this walk of life with him every single day. And that's my hope for this rhythm for our church. I want to invite the worship team to come up right now. And as they lead us in this time, I want to give you just a few moments to set this rhythm in your life and to begin to make plans even now to start talking to God. You see, God is angry at sin, but he has great love for sinners. And God's anger towards sin is met at the cross, where it's far better than you could ever imagine. God offers his grace and his forgiveness to every single person. If you would bow your heads, if you would pray with me, please. God, I thank you for this reminder this morning that you are holy that we should never dare try to tame or manipulate or orchestrate your moves, but just simply to worship and to adore the God that you are. The God that loves us and comes down intimately in search of every single heart and soul to redeem and to meet with your love. God, I pray that in this moment we would meet with you and that this would just be the beginning of a conversation and a walk with you every single day. God, we're going to give you our hearts of worship, our words, and our song, because you alone are worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.